Our text today is found in Psalm 24. Psalm 24. By the way, the moms get to sit in with us today, so that's great. And the dads would be with the the kids. Verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? We will be looking at a number of other uh, verses, but I thought this would be a good place to start. We've been looking in the matter of memory, as well as the loss of memory. In doing so, I hope that we would develop a theology of memory, of remembering, but also of forgetting. Memory is an important part of what it means to be human, and the Bible has a lot to say about memory and remembering. It is important. But I think we fail to appreciate what the Bible says about it. Just to review what we, looked, what we saw last Sunday, I think we make at least four mistakes when it comes to the issue of memory as American Christians. First of all, as Americans, we tend to undervalue memory um, until it's seen as a result of disease, and then we freak out because we don't want to lose our memory. One could argue, and some have argued, that Americans have a wide faith, but it is not a deep faith because we don't have memory. We don't remember. We don't think about those who came before us. Secondly, we see or we tend to see remembering as purely a matter of the mind, as an intellectual matter. Um, Particularly in the modern world, the postmodern world, this is the case. Um, Others have reacted against this, like the Romantic movement. Um, But the Bible sees remembering as much more than simply the mind. Um, I mentioned last Sunday that we live in a hyper-cognitive society which prizes intellect and reason. And it does so above love, relationships, community, and being together. Um, For many people, they think that the essence of being human is to think. Descartes' famous, I think, therefore I am. And if that's the case, if we lose the ability to remember or to reason or to think as we used to, we may in fact lose a sense of ourselves and then we become concerned that in fact we are no longer human. Thirdly, we put way too much weight on our ability to remember, our our ability to reason and to think. And even as Christians, oftentimes, This shapes how we view our relationship with God rather than throwing ourselves on God's mercy and God's grace. We're like, well, I'm a Christian because I've done this or because I understand these theological issues rather than trusting in God's grace. And lastly, we fail to remember or to rest in God's remembering. The God who remembers is the one who calls his people to remember. The foundation of our memory is God's remembering. To address these shortcomings last week, we talked about practical theology. Practical theology is that which tries to bring the practices of the church and the practices of the world and, in a sense, bring them together, but for the church to see what it is supposed to do in the light of what is going on in the world. What are God's purposes in the world and what are we to do about it? Practical theology seeks to bring together theology and practice. And this is a critical thing. We talked about it at length last last Sunday. It 
re-describes reality. It re-describes the nature of the world. And our practices, in fact, if we are to remain true to the faith, the practices of God are to be done in that light as we re-describe the world. Theology provides a lens for us through which to see the world, to look at it and to see it correctly. If you think about it, one of the purposes of Scripture, beyond the revelation of God, is to re-describe reality or the world. As we read the Scriptures, we should allow it to redefine reality. We make sense of the world through stories, and the stories that inform the way that we see things. For most of us, though, because we live in this country and this culture, the stories that shape our beliefs oftentimes don't come from Scripture. I mentioned last week there are at least five primary stories that form many people's views. Nationalism, religion, capitalism, psychology, and biomedicine. And they're so powerful and so deeply ingrained that we don't even realize how much they have impacted our thinking. And beyond that, they have changed the way we view Scripture. So that now we view Scripture not as that which should re-describe reality, but we see the world as that which should, in fact, redefine Scripture. And this is quite dangerous. And we fall into deep traps if this is the case. No matter what the stories the world has, there are other stories, there are counterclaims, and the Christian faith is certainly one of these. The Bible, in contrast to the world that talks about individualism and competition or competitiveness, a place where autonomy and freedom and choice are the highest good, this is what it means to be human, Instead, the scripture points us to a place in which God is sovereign and God is majestic and he rules. In this creation that God made, we find in scripture, we find that salvation comes from brokenness and that strength comes from weakness and that gentleness is an important part of God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week that the idea of redescribing the world may sound a bit strange and even it's like you know, sort of close to the edge of things here. But if you think about it, it is in fact part and parcel of the Christian faith. Take, for example, the death of Jesus. The world, a historian, would say that the death of Jesus was that of a first century Jewish peasant who was put to death as a criminal by the occupying and ruling power that is the Romans. Some might say, well, yes, but his life is an ex- or his death is an example of self-sacrifice and maybe even martyrdom. But in Scripture, we see that this event is re-described as an atoning and redeeming act in which God in flesh took on the sins of the world and made atonement. So, this view of the death of Jesus is radically different than what the world would see. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is one of the issues the Corinthians were really struggling with because their neighbors, the Greeks, were saying, but this is ridiculous. How can you, in fact, worship someone who was crucified as a common criminal? Well, because Scripture tells us that it was something much different than that. But we need to be careful that we should not imagine that only religious or spiritual events can be redefined or redescribed. All of reality is to be seen in that way, and I hope to show that today.
Now, this doesn't mean that we reject what the world says. There is, in fact, continuity. I mean, people are made in God's image. They aren't completely without any vision. But it is through scripture that we come to see things as God intends us to see them. Unfortunately, and I'll be through with the view, review in a minute, but unfortunately, I think for many Christians of our age group and your age group, because I'm older than many of you, the Christian faith is not a redescribing of reality. It's simply sprinkling stuff on the way the world views things. So we use sort of God words or Christian words, but we don't really see our vision is not transformed to see reality as we should. In scripture, the matter of remembering and forgetting is not simply an intellectual issue in the same way that believing in faith is not simply a matter of the mind. There is a moral dimension as well. That means that on the final day of judgment, people will not be able to say, I'm sorry, I forgot. This will not be a sufficient excuse. It is not merely our memories that are faulty. Um, We are morally defective. We are sinners. We are sinful. We are actively in rebellion against God. So, pride can be defined as, in part, forgetting who we really are. But again, not simply a matter of the mind. And ingratitude can be defined in part not simply as forgetting to be thankful, oh, I forgot to say thank you, but forgetting what God has done. And taking God's name in vain is forgetting who he is in majesty, but in power as well. Central to all of this is the place of stories, and that's where I'd like to begin today. We tell stories to identify ourselves. We tell stories about our past, about our childhood, about what's going on right now. But we also tell stories about what we hope will happen in the future. And it's very strange. Here we are at this particular moment in time. But when we tell stories, we can move sort of back and forth from the past to the future to the present and back and forth. But what happens when we can no longer do this? What happens when we can no longer tell our story? When we can no longer tell about the past? Maybe not even the present and and certainly nothing about the future. I think many of us would have explanations and things that we would say about this, but we need to consider the loss of memory in the light of Scripture, in the light of the Gospel. Rather than simply accepting what we hear from biomedicine and the determinism that it presents, inevitable neurological decline, the nature of suffering, the role of memory, the value of freedom, I think we should in fact retell the story in the light of the kingdom of God. To correct these stories, to enhance them, to transform them. Now, it is not my intent in this series to reject the biomedical story, but rather to consider a story that will transform that story. So that it isn't simply, this is the way it is because this is what biology or medicine tells us, but in fact to re-describe it. Centuries ago, John Calvin wrote, Nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth the other, is not easy to discern. 
For Calvin, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are completely intertwined. We can only know who we are and why we are here, why we have done what we have done, only if we look at ourselves in the light of Scripture. Those who hold the Scripture, that is us, need to re-examine the Scripture to see what it says about what it means to be human. In a book entitled Persons, The Difference Between Someone and Something, Robert Spayman argues against the idea that human beings are defined by their capabilities. He writes, human beings have certain definite properties that license us to call them persons. But it is not the properties we call persons, but the human beings who possess the properties. There are certain things that we associate with being human personal existence. We have the ability to communicate, for example, and to respond. Um, But we need to understand that these come from the reality that this is a person, rather than say, well, because this exists, that person we can now designate as a person. We are part of the human family. It doesn't depend on the abilities that others can observe. Oh, this person can speak, therefore they are human. This person can reason, therefore he or she is human. No, that's not the way it is. And by extension, this means that there's nothing that a person can lose that can occur to a person that we can say, oh, this person is now less than a person. This, this individual is less than a human being. Paul tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I think in the same way, nothing can alter our status as persons. But what does it mean to be human? Some would say that being human is simply the being the byproduct of blind chance over time, uh, that a series of organisms evolved, and their primary function is to reproduce so that there can be further evolution that can occur. Some would say that the term human has no more value than the designation of, let's say, a tree or a plant. There's no sense of transcendence. Ethicists would tell us that we are simply a species among species. We have no particular moral claim over animals. But as Calvin said, I would argue that it is impossible for us to understand what it means to be human without first understanding who God is and where we stand in relation to God. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. But knowledge of ourselves depends on knowledge of God. It is only when we begin to recognize and acknowledge our status before God that we are creatures made in his image that we can really understand memory and the loss of memory as the scripture presents it to us. Following the lead of a man in Scotland, a theologian, John Swinton, I would suggest that what it means to be human involves five things. And we need to get a hold of these five things so that we can then understand what it means to have memory and to lose memory. To be human is to be dependent. To be human is to be embodied, that is to have a body. To be human is to be relational. To be human is to be broken. To be human is to be loved. And I realized as as I was preparing this that some of this is so familiar to many of you, but bear with me as I go through this because I think it really provides the foundation for us
to coming to understand what memory is all about. Human beings, first of all, are creatures who are wholly dependent upon God. We are dependent and contingent. There is nothing that anyone has that has not been given to him or to her. Radical dependency marks human beings. Something we really need to get a hold of. Radical dependency marks human beings. In a book written by someone whose father had Alzheimer's, he noted, we are radically dependent upon our parents, families, and friends, or other responsible persons from the time of our first breath and all through our formative years. And we are, re- we are radically dependent upon God for among manifold, manifold graces and loves, the blessedness of everlasting life. Radical dependence challenges the ultimately isolating ends of our postmodern time. Western culture prizes freedom and choice, individualism, autonomy, when the reality is, as human beings, we are dependent. We are dependent upon God, and we're dependent upon one another. At a temporal level, we depend on our family, on our community, on civility, if you wish, between one another. But above all, we are, more, we are fundamentally dependent upon God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Our essential state as human beings is that we are dependent. We are creatures. As Paul told the people in Athens, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. If we recognize that we are radically dependent, this should lead us to see or to conclude that everything we have, all that we have, is gift. We are not to be valued because we have certain capabilities, because whatever capabilities we have have been given to us as gifts. Job, after a series of disasters, said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Human beings are are gifted and valued because God loves them. And he continues to care for them in the midst of their joys and sufferings. To be a person is to be human. And to be human is to be gifted and to be loved. If the time would come when we begin to lose our memory, or because of disease we find ourselves more dependent upon others, it does not in any way diminish our humanness or our personhood. It doesn't move us away from being human or a person. It's quite the opposite. It is, if anything, a reaffirmation of who we truly are as human beings. We are dependent. We have always been dependent. But there is a period of time in our lives, and it's different for everyone, where we feel really independent that we can take care of ourselves. And when we begin to lose that, then we become fearful because we have forgotten that to be human is to be dependent. One story, uh, one author put it this way, long story short, we don't get to make, up, uh, make our lives up. 
we get to receive them as gifts. The story that says we should have no story except the story we choose when we have no story is a lie. To be human is to learn that we don't get to make up our lives because we are creatures. Christians are people who recognize that we have a father whom we can thank for our existence. Christian discipleship is about learning to receive our life as gift without regret. So we are not the author, we're not the authors of our own stories. Our calling is to learn to read and interpret the story of God faithfully in our lives, to do what God has called us to do. And for those who have come to recognize that God is the creator, the gift of life and the giftedness of life really is transformative. It changes or it should change how we see things. Rather than saying, I think, therefore I am, with Descartes, or I am because of what I can do, or I am because others choose to relate to me, by God's grace we should say, I am because I am created, dependent, gifted, and loved in all circumstances and for all time. To be human is to be dependent. Secondly, human beings are embodied creatures. That is, we have bodies. And although we cannot be reduced to bodily functions, our bodies are important. I think the culture around us would try to define us in terms of bodily function, and if we're not careful, we'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. Our bodies, in fact, are important. We experience the world in and through our bodies. In Genesis 2, we are told of the creation of the first human. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Human beings are a combination of material and immaterial. We are created by matter, but given breath and brought into existence by the very breath of God. This is where I think we get into trouble, because we tend to see ourselves as made up of two parts, uh, made up of bodies and souls. Um, and part of this is because of Greek philosophy that has infected the church from way, way back when. Um, but this is not, in fact, what scripture tells us. One writer writes brilliantly, I think, according to this verse, the one that I just read to you, God did not make a body and put a soul in it, like a letter into an envelope. He formed man out of dust. By breathing his breath into it, he made the dust live. Insofar as it lived, it was a soul. The dust formed as man and made to live did not embody a soul. It became a soul. Soul here refers to the whole creature. Another man has noted that man does not have a body. He is a body. The body is the soul of an outward form. Simply put, but not simplistically put, human beings are animated earth or dirt. We are dust that has been brought to life, which contains the very breath of God. And in this light, think of something that may be familiar to you. The last public teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25, when he talks about giving to those who are hungry and thirsty and naked and in prison. I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Because it is the breath of God that has animated every human being on the planet. Our bodies are the venue of God's creative action. It's the place where God meets us and he sustains us. 
in the words of Exodus, our bodies are holy ground. Moses was told to take off his sandals because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Well, if we are made from the ground and it is the breath of God that gave us life, then we are, in essence, holy ground. And when we say that we are holy ground, we mean our, our bodies. You see, when God made Adam, he didn't simply make a brain. He took the dust and created a human body, of which the brain is a part, but it is only one component that has the same purpose as the rest of the body, and that is to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. And the enjoying and glorifying of God can't simply be done by the brain. Though again, living within where we do, I think we think that way. The brain isn't the only aspect of our existence as human beings. But it is important, particularly in spiritual practices. It does remain fundamental. But what happens when we lose that? What happens when our brains no longer work as they should? It's not an indication that God has abandoned us. God is always with us. As long as he continues to sustain us, as he has breathed into us life, the life we have is the presence of God. We need to recognize that our existence, including our spiritual lives, are dependent upon God. Another writer put it this way, spiritual self-identity used as used theologically on biblical grounds, is contingent upon the spirit of God, both in its formation and its growth. The existence of brain cells is necessary, but an insufficient condition for the expression of life of the soul as personal spiritual being. I, again, as I said, I think one of the mistakes we make is we take too much on ourselves. If I do this, if I learn these verses, if I do these practices, then I will, in fact, enable myself to grow. But it is God who has breathed into us. And as we grow, it is because of the life he has given us and continues to give us. It is God who made us. It is he who sustains us. We should never forget that. In Psalm 139, David wrote, For you created my inmost being. You knit me in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. It is God through the Spirit who knits together and forms all human beings. It is God who puts limits on our physical capabilities. It is God who sustains the whole of our lives. We are all limited, but even our limits have significance. So our identity, who we really are, is envisioned, is created, is held by God. The third aspect of what it means to be human is relationships or relationality. Human beings are creatures who are loved into existence and marked out as special by their creator. We are creatures as are all things that are created. But what makes us different from the animals, for example, from the plants, 
We see it in the creation account in which God begins to communicate with Adam and he enters into a personal relationship with him. This verse I'm sure you're familiar with, but I think we always go in a different direction in terms of discussions. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Much has been said about this, the whole issue of dominion and being in control. I think what we fail to realize, we sort of skip over, we gloss over, is that God desires to be in relationship with human beings. Um, in a way that he does not with the rest of creation, on a personal level. God moves toward Adam, if you wish, and he gives him instructions. These are the things that I want you to do. It is worth noting that none of this comes from Adam. Adam doesn't say to God, hey, I want to be in relationship with you. It is the creator who says to the creature, be fruitful and multiply. God initiates, God sustains the relationship. We should never forget that. We, again, we put so much on ourselves and when we fail, we think that's it, it's the end because I have failed. We will always fail. It is God who sustains the relationship. And even after Adam and Eve sin and plunge the world into darkness, God continues to relate to them. He continues to speak to them. One could say when Adam and Eve had sinned, that's it. You're out of the garden and I don't want to talk to you ever again. And we see that that is not what happens. Because Adam is made in the image of God and God relates to Adam, Adam wants to relate to someone else, but there's no one else. God recognizes that and he makes Eve and then Adam relates to Eve. And since Adam is incomplete when he was the only human being, he found a certain amount of fulfillment in his relationship with God. But it's when God made Eve that he finds another fulfillment. And we see that as human beings, to be human is to be in relationship. Which leads us to the fourth aspect of what it means to be human. To be human is to be loved. And to live humanly is to love. But what does that mean? What is the nature of love? If you ask five people, you'll probably get five different definitions. But love is an act of engagement with another at a deep and personal level, which states clearly in word and action, I want you to exist. I am glad that you're here. I want you to exist. It is a way of willing. Romantic feelings, on the other hand, I think... They see someone else who says that is there and because of their attractiveness or because of whatever, say, I have feelings for you. I have desires for you. Um, the love that we see in scripture is quite different. It is quite intentional. It requires determination, faithfulness and an intentional desire to be with another, to continue to love that person no matter what. It doesn't say, well, since you're here, I'll put up with you. It states boldly that we want the other person to be here. And more than that, that we are glad that he or she is here, no matter the circumstances. Because this is precisely the way that God loves his creation. It's the way we are called to love one another. When creation revolts and rebels against God, God continues to love. His love persists. When human beings 
become amnesiac about their responsibilities toward God and where they came from, they live out their lives as though they are the center of the universe, God persists. To be human is to be loved persistently. And to live humanly is to show persistent love toward others. To engage in a personal loving relationship is not the product of moral obligation or duty. It's a matter of faithfulness. This is what we're called to do. It's not to say that it's easy, that it's not uncomplicated. Because here we come to the fifth thing of what it means to be human, and that is to be broken. Broken and deeply so. We've seen that the basis of being of creation is love, and that the proper status of human beings is dependency. But the fact of being dependent and being loved was pushed aside by Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit. As much as to say, we don't need God, we are quite, we do quite well on our own, and we're not sure that God loves us. Because the serpent said, well, did God really say that? Because he, you know, he's actually not, he doesn't really care about you. If he did, he would let you eat from this tree. And so, failing to remember that God made them, and failing to remember that he loved them, Adam and Eve pushed aside that and sinned. I think we do the same thing day after day. We see it in our lives, we see it in our surrounding culture, in which people seek to be independent, not dependent, independent and free, and to be God in their own lives, to make their own decisions. Human beings have managed and continue to manage to alienate themselves from their one source of life and love. And they manage and continue to manage to reject the love of God. The consequences of these actions are seen all around us. We may fail to recognize them, however. I think we only focus on certain aspects and say, oh, this is a result of sin. Um, To be human is to be mortal, and to be mortal means that decay is inevitable. But we should not say, Oh, I'm less human now because I don't have the abilities that I had 10 years ago or 20 years ago. We should not imagine somehow that we are less of a person than we used to be because we have declined. We are broken. We have always been broken. There are times in our lives when we don't feel broken. When we feel pretty good, our health is good, we're making good money, we have a place to live, we feel independent. And then the time comes when we find that we need to be dependent, and we imagine that this is a new, this is a new stage in my life. Or when the body begins to break down, or the memory begins to go, and we think, oh, this is different. It might be a different expression, but we've always been broken, and we've always been dependent. Um, Reminded of the song by Bob Dylan that everything is broken, and we are all broken, and we forget that somehow. To be broken is what it means to be human, 
but we are also in the process of being redeemed. And thank God for that. To lose your memory is not to move from being a person to being a non-person or less of a person. To be human in a world that is not yet redeemed is to get old and to forget things. That's what it means to be human. Now, some of the things that I've said today are familiar to you. And I do think it is important for you to remember, no pun intended, if we are going to develop a theology of remembering and forgetting. We are human. And to be human means to be dependent, embodied, relational, loved, and broken. And when it comes to the matter of memory, we are to rest in the memories of God. And we are to remember that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The Lord willing, with this foundation in the weeks to come, we will move ahead. See, how is it that we as God's people, how are we to see our decline, if you wish? How are we to see memory and the loss of memory? Uh, in the light of scripture and what are we to do in that regard above all I think I told you at the end of the first sermon in the series we are to rest in the memories of God because whose memory would you rather trust your own or God's your relationship would you rather have it depend on your memory or God's memory one of the great uh, phrases that we find in scripture time and time again and God remembered Moses and God remembered Rachel and she cried out for a child as I said that first Sunday put your name in there and God remembered Damon and see what a wonderful thing it is that we depend on God's memory more than we do on our own let's pray together Our Father, how easily we forget, sometimes deliberately, who we are. That we were made, but that we are broken. That we are relational, that we are loved. Because of the stories and the songs surrounding culture, we want to be free. We want to be independent. Something that is, is, is mythic. It's not true. It's a lie. We are dependent. We always have been. From the moment we are born until we die. Sometimes we just recognize it more quickly than others. I thank you that you always remember. And that who we are and our relationship to you is not dependent upon us, because then we would really be in serious trouble. But rest in your grace and your love. That nothing can separate us from your love. By your grace, may we think about these things in the days to come as we continue to look at the matter of a theology of memory, 
of remembering and forgetting. May our faith in you grow. May we come to trust you in a deeper way. We pray for Dad and Lonnie as they travel. You would give them safety. For those that are sick, we pray for Stacy these last six weeks. You would give her strength as her time of delivery draws near. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.